0: So what it comes to is a sort of trade-off between waiting for central government direction and provision of national resources to do things, and local people getting together and collaborating to start to put change in action from the grassroots upwards.
1: Urban Jungle brings stories from people around the globe that design and build a better world. I am Magda Flores, and this is Urban Jungle. Welcome. This is a conversation with Nigel Hargreaves, Director at SIMFO Limited, and about to become Chief Operating Officer of Goodery Limited. Congratulations, Nigel.
0: Thank you very much, Magda.
1: Pleasure. I believe that Nigel is passionate about designing systems for sustainability. Today, we talk about the challenges faced in developing sustainable communities. Nigel, would you please tell us about a favourite place where you live
0: or work? I live in East Anglia, which is part of the UK, which is very beautiful and known for its uh, remoteness and beaches. And I prefer that kind of environment.
1: Beautiful. The local economy is the backbone of our local communities. And latest figures show that two thirds of our expenditure stays in the local economy particularly in the current climate, how do we incentivize the consumer to buy local?
0: Well, if we had the answer to that question, I think we'd all be very rich. It's more an art than a science, I think. A sense of community comes from a lot of different things. And I think when you have a strong sense of community, customers are more likely to purchase goods made and sourced locally. So the question really should be is how do we create a strong sense of community? and go from there and I think that that comes in a number of different ways people have to feel included they have to feel safe they have to connect with them each other themselves and of course their environment so that they look after it and so that becomes then a, a sense of pride of the place and I think when that happens people will curate and, and care for their local environment for future generations sake as well.
1: In recent months we have had to rethink the way our small businesses interact with each other as to create stronger and more resilient business community, clearly not just the community itself but also the business community. In your experience, how are local businesses supporting each other?
0: My interest is not so much in the larger scale businesses, multinationals and the ones that have chains that are set up nationally, but in the more ecologically and socially oriented enterprises. And there's a number of ways in which they are, I think, helping each other. But it comes, again, back to what their objectives are with regard to the community. And there's the link. So there has been said that it's the land that connects people together, but it's also the community that sits between them. And that place that I'm talking about, there's been, for example, two that come to mind. Uh, One is a food recycling centre that takes waste, which would be otherwise disposed of in the ground by supermarkets and turns it into usable meals for people who cannot afford to buy a regular meal for their families. So they come and they eat the produce that's that's been cooked for them. And increasingly, we're seeing that more people are depending on food banks as we go forward. So this is playing a very important role in bringing the community together and gathering community support. The other sort takes it a level deeper. And I'm Thinking of the Sustainable Living Initiative, which is centred around a community garden in Norwich, where people are actually encouraged to come and learn how to grow their own food. So at the very grassroots level, I'm seeing this happen. If you take it at a level higher than that, we've got Goodery Limited, for instance, which is a new startup that aims to offer a hyper-local e-commerce platform to support businesses such that they can increase their sales. But it's very selective in the kinds of businesses it wants to work with and currently offers, for example, an organic vegetable box delivery scheme at zero emissions and uses zero waste packaging. But we want to bring on a wider range of products made by local artisans as well to encourage their business prospects.
1: All these people are working very, very hard, and clearly many of them are not getting paid for this. Are there some kind of incentives that can actually help us develop some of these ecological or social or community organisations to help support the community in general?
0: I think the government do offer some financial incentives to businesses that were adversely affected by the measures imposed through lockdown, and they have kept people from going joining the queues at the job centre but really what you're talking about is a more sustainable system going forward long term helps to increase the resilience of the local community as part of its economic prospects.
1: So what we're saying is that spending local means demand for local produce and therefore need for supply that generate jobs and benefit the local community. Would you like to expand in these examples for the local community?
0: Sure. So there's a number of dimensions to look at. One is the supply chain. So for example, benefit to the local community would come from a short supply chain, one that is reliable and resilient and and employs people locally to create the goods and services that are then sold on the market, as it were. Another one which has been trialled in different parts of the UK includes a local currency. And in fact, I've heard that instance in Bristol, it's estimated that by spending money using the Bristol pound, they keep the value of the local economy so concentrated and focused around Bristol to the point where it's about two and a half times as strong as it would otherwise be if we were using the fiat currency, the British pound in other words. So that's one way of controlling the circulation of wealth that goes into a local area is to create a local currency. And in fact, Believe it or not, in the UK, it's not illegal to create currencies that that you can then use in a local situation. And an idea that I've had is to use blockchain and digital currencies to create a very portable and easy to use currency that could be, say, managed through your mobile phone system in participating stores, for instance.
1: So you would do that through an app? So I would have so many tokens or so many Nigel pounds to be able to exchange? in various different outlets?
0: Yeah, that's right. And you can be paid in the same currency as well. For instance, in Hull, they have HullCoin. And HullCoin is a digital currency that is paid to people that do these work that's designed to benefit civic interest. And then they can go and spend that money using their digital wallets on their phones by tapping them on receivers in the shops and outlets that are participating in that scheme. So it's very easy to manage.
1: Well, that would certainly allow us for a proper economy incentivization, where we can do anything, either redesigning the food or the packaging or the waste or looking into various other ethical organisations. How do we promote environmentally friendly organisations by using either this kind of incentive or any other?
0: Well, I think think the thing to recognise is what we're talking about here is peer-to-peer operations and distributed systems. So these two things, when they come together, allow you to decouple from centralised command and control systems. And this is already, for example, most strongly in evidence in renewable energy. So if you put some solar panels on your roof and your neighbour puts some solar panels on their roof, potentially you've got the supply chain for a market that could result in you exchanging energy between your two properties. If it were possible through the regulatory system of the country and also through technology such as peer-to-peer trading systems. And those sorts of platforms are now available to us in different countries, Australia being one of the forerunners, but also the United States. There's systems popping up in continental Europe as well.
1: How do we make it wide across the whole of the country? Because, okay, we have this currency or whatever it is that we are using in one part of Australia or one part of the UK or one part of the US. Can we make them nationwide and then further afield?
0: You can, of course. uh, possible when you go digital through the process of virtualization. uh, For example, virtual power plants operate in that kind of way where you might have uh, generators in different parts geographically of a country but digitally, they can be combined to look as if they're a single power station. And they can then accumulate and aggregate the amounts of energy that they're, they're generating to uh, supply one demand, for instance, in yet another part. But I think there's a question here. You see, when you start to go digital, you also take a step away from the physical. And as, as the physical is what we're talking about in terms of local people and the local economy, therefore, has to trade off between the degree of scaling up geographically to the degree of benefit that is individually apportioned to each region or local area that we're talking about. So there's this balancing act to take place. And my feeling is that the distributed system architectures allow for both because you can say, right, I have a system working in in one geography, say it's East Anglia, I have another system working in the Southwest. How can these systems trade with each other? Well, that has to happen over the internet, virtually, in the cloud. However you look at it, it has to go digital to do that. But what is the real benefit? Am I really going to be selling vegetables that I grow in the fields of East Anglia to people in Devon? No, but I could sell energy. So it really depends as well on the commodity that's being exchanged, how you do that.
1: Well, That would require a very mature society. How far are we from being able to step up to that level?
0: I think what we have is the solutions already digitally, but we don't have the regulations that enable people to go ahead and use that sort of thing. And regulatory cycles tend to be a lot longer than innovation cycles. And So what's happened is that the digital innovation and what's actually in theory possible has raced ahead in the last 10, 15 years, much further and faster than the regulatory cycles have been able to keep up. And in a way, that's understandable because regulatory cycles have to be very prudent, very careful, very cautious. They have to find the exceptions, if you like, rather than just the rule, so that they can have contingencies for things when they go wrong. Uh, and all of that takes quite a lot of time to work out. And again, it comes as well from experience because sometimes we don't know what could go wrong until it happens because it's so unforeseeable. And therefore, the regulatory process normally would move more slowly. But I think. One of the whole points about decoupling power and devolution of power from central government should actually eventually give people more autonomy to design their own local economies and then decide which markets they want to trade with.
1: Wow. So what I'm thinking about is how do we prepare our current local economies for the upcoming challenge?
0: I think what we have to do, I mean, these days, really, carbon is king. And I say that because climate change is a big threat to all of us. So what I would like to see more of is local planning that says, right, we're going to take a portion of the carbon budget that we have committed to nationally to achieve by a certain date. And we're going to make sure that we instigate processes and plans that facilitate our local communities helping us achieve that. And that doesn't happen nearly enough at the moment. That kind of joined-up thinking really doesn't take place. But it's all there if we want to find it. Um, it's all on the statute books. We have the Climate Change Act. We have the Paris Agreement. We have all these agreements which have numbers embedded in them that says the world must limit its emissions to a certain budget or the temperature will rise, in theory, according to the models, again above a certain level. So we can work out from these huge numbers, our own local economy should actually stay within in terms of the carbon budget. And from that, we should then prioritize those parts of the businesses and those parts of the business community that actually are going to help us achieve that. And from there, we can sell that argument to the local people to say, look, you can already see the evidence of climate change happening around you. Just look out the window right now. I've got 35 degrees in my back garden in Norfolk and I haven't seen rain for over three weeks this is not a normal weather pattern for the UK I can see these changes year upon year happening and therefore I attribute that to climate change and I think the same story could be told everywhere you go in the world so we have to make that connection it comes back to connections again between our local environment and what we're doing to support the reduction if you like in those greenhouse gas emissions.
1: So, again, is that going back to our communities, putting a bit of pressure on our leadership? What step do we need to take? If things are already there, what is stopping us from moving to the next level?
0: Well, I think one of the things is that governments don't work in the same kind of cycles of decision making that people you know, like you and I do. According to a new book by Martin Krzyszniak, who's the partner of Kate Rayworth, who wrote uh, donut economics in order to be a good ancestor you have to think long term and people i think at the grassroots level think long term and therefore they're prepared to make sacrifices now for their families and their future generations their grand- grandchildren and so forth so they're more agile in a way and more uh, interested in preserving the environment than most political parties and central governments that only seem to think in five-year cycles to the next election So what it comes to is a sort of trade-off between waiting for central government direction and provision of national resources to do things, and local people getting together and collaborating in a new form of economy, often referred to, in fact, as a transactive or collaborative economy, to start to put change in action from the grassroots upwards. And somewhere in the middle, we can only hope that the two meet to create a satisfying outcome.
1: Well, we better hurry up because we haven't got very much time given climate change, given local economies and the pressures on our people to survive and have better jobs or jobs, because at the moment that's not the case for everyone.
0: This is true. And of course, the more effort and energy and attention is paid to things like um, COVID-19, I'm not trying to play down the importance of this, but in the realm of things which are important, The thing that we should really be concerning ourselves with is what's been termed the sixth extinction event, which refers to not only the impacts of global heating upon our environment, but the destruction of uh, species that are undermining our own food chain and that of of our uh, animal kingdom, and the pollution of the oceans, the plastics and things like this. So we we should be thinking much more in terms of circular economy, biomimicry, even I've come across a very nice term, biotecture, which refers to the way in which we design buildings uh, around cyclical processes. And the earthship being a really good example of that, which Michael Reynolds uh, has um, pioneered in, in the United States. So I think people have all the solutions around them. In fact, nature is a great teacher in this respect. It's had billions of years to develop solutions to sustainability. We should be looking and observing how those solutions work and designing those much more into our everyday processes, whether it be from growing food, or to the way in which we collaborate locally, buying and selling, and what we're doing with our our money, whether we're uh, frittering it away on the latest television or iPhone, or whatever it might be, or are we investing it in our futures?
1: Is there anything that we haven't covered?
0: I think education is an area we haven't mentioned. I think a lot of the solutions that um, create require a change to um, or an addition to the conventional uh, educational topics and subjects that our children are being taught.
1: Are we saying that that is across the whole range from youngsters all the way through to university and beyond?
0: Potentially yes but certainly I think it's acutely felt in the younger uh, end of the education spectrum I mean, it's a pleasure now to see things like forest schools, where classrooms are taken into the forest to actually study what's going on around them in the natural environment. But, you know, we should be talking about climate change. We should be talking about the tough subjects, which these younger generations are going to have to uh, find solutions to for their own survival. We should be talking about food uh, and where it comes from, rather than assuming that the child will understand if all they've seen is the supermarket, they'll know, for instance, where milk from some kids actually think it comes from the supermarket rather than an animal that's producing it. And so this kind of uh, cyclical thinking that looks at the whole system process is what I would like to see taught more in education and and about how we make medicine and our dependency upon pharmaceuticals. Is this a good thing? We need more open debate um, in order to understand what makes us healthy and ultimately what doesn't.
1: Well, certainly whole systems understanding would allow us as a society to do two things, to make our local communities thrive and also make sure that at a national level, every single country actually gets there. And I think we do have enough long way to go yet.
0: We do, but we don't have a lot of time, as you've already said. In fact, this 10 years, the 2020s, is so critical um, to the decades that follow it just because of the carbon trajectories that have been modelled with, with a high degree of, of certainty now, um, to make life livable by the end of the century or even, even before that, by the, by the 2050s onwards. It's so important that we raise our ambitions and increase the amount of effort that we're making in every direction When you take a 360 degree look at sustainability, which is one of the wonderful things that I think is offered to us in the donut economic framework, which I would encourage everybody to get familiar with.
1: Right. So if people wanted to get hold of you, Nigel, because you have a very interesting and um, varied understanding of the world, because you've been from energy all the way through sustainability and circular economy. And am I missing anything here that you've been also involved in?
0: Well, I was trained as a natural medicine practitioner at one time in my life as well. Oh, well,
1: there we go. <laughs> I, I knew I was missing something. <laughs> so how,
0: how can
1: people actually get hold of you?
0: Well, they can get hold of me through my LinkedIn uh, site if uh, if they want to look me up that way. That's probably the best way of doing it, actually.
1: Oh, perfect. Is there anything else that you would like to add?
0: It's been um, a pleasure to talk to you. And I think this is a, a really hot topic, literally. I hope that I can inspire others around the world to think whole system solutions and to coin a phrase, um, act locally while thinking globally.
1: This is Urban Jungle with your host, Magda Flores. Thanks for joining. And if there is a topic or people you would like to hear from, all you have to do is drop me a line. My email address is urbanwsolutions at gmail.com. Join us in the next episodes where we discuss challenges in the water sector, digital twins, and much more. Visit www.urbanwellbeingsolutions.com